You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 73. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. All right, it's July 1st, already half of the year in the bag. I was once asked a question, how many programming languages are there by someone who is not a programmer? And of course, you can't answer that. What, like infinite? Might as well be. Uh, you know, no one has heard of all of them. I could just invent a new programming languages in a day. Um, a lot of people at universities kind of sit around inventing programming languages. I've done it just in my spare time. Now, if you have a cutoff for how many languages people actually use, actually have all the features that you need uh, to be fully functional, I don't know, even the top 20, 100, 500 probably wouldn't even be enough. But one language has been moving up the charts slowly and steadily over the last couple decades. That's Python. Uh, and it's, Python is actually named for the Monty Python comedy group, believe it or not. Not the snake, as many people believe. Um, and uh, yeah, it's probably, his, if not the most popular uh, programming language for new projects. It's 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 one of the, the most popular. So why why is this language so dominant, and what can we learn from its success? That's something I'll ask today's guest, Michael Kennedy. Michael is the host of the Talk Python to Me and Python Bytes podcast. He's also the founder of Talk Python Training and is a Python Software Foundation fellow. Uh, Michael has been working in the developer field for more than twenty years and has spoken at numerous conferences. Now, Talk Python to Me is one of those successful podcasts that you see, and you you see why, because it really helps Python developers keep up with their knowledge and keep learning, and Python Bytes as well with all the latest news. And with all the focus recently on how to monetize podcasts and what the business model is, and more importantly, what's the best way to fund getting good information out to the public in general? Because <laughs> there's a lot of bad information getting out to the public. So how do you fund getting good information out to the public? I had to ask uh, Michael uh, about how he did this. So, And we also talk about the importance and role of computer science education and programming skills as well. So I'm excited to uh, share with you this interview. Let's bring it up. All right, Michael Kennedy, welcome to the show. Welcome to The Local Maximum. It's great to be here, Max. Thank you for having me. This is uh, a cool show you put together, and it's an honor to be here. Thank you. It's, uh, it's really cool to have you on. So you host the legendary Talk Python to Me <laughs> podcast. I like, the, I like the name of that. And you teach Python development to teams all over the world. Uh, let's start, like, when did you start first, when did you first start coding in Python? Um, did you have like some kind of aha moment, maybe like a, a project or a problem where you felt that this language had something really special going for it? Sure. Uh, I do feel like the language has something special going for it. What's interesting, though, I think maybe even will surprise you or some of your listeners is what I have many of the guests I have on my show, you know, they find Python super early and they've been doing it for 15 years. That wasn't the case for me. I had done a ton of C++ programming, some C Sharp and .NET programming, and I came to Python maybe six years ago, five years ago, you know, not super recently. Yeah. I've done a lot of programming in other spaces, but it's it's one of those things like, you know, maybe if you go on vacation or something, you show up in a place and you're like, oh, Wow. I can't believe I didn't know about this. This is great, right? You know, like just I got I got into the Python ecosystem and I thought, you know, this this place is special. Let me spend some more time here, right? And as I did, uh, some things were odd, some things were amazing, but 
the most powerful thing was my reaction to going back to the other languages I mentioned after spending a few weeks in Python. Right. You know, you always go to... C++ especially. (laughs) Exactly. You you go to uh, another technology or another language and you feel like you just feel uncomfortable, right? Like Mm. I used to know how to do this thing. Now I don't. I used to be really quick at doing that thing. And now it's really hard, right? It's like learning to drive or something things that used to be autopilot are now, you know, hard again, or require your specific attention again. And the oddities stand out, right? Like Python's use of white space instead of curly braces, like JavaScript, C sharp, C plus plus, all these things, like they're all in this, the C style of language. And that drove me crazy at first. I thought, Oh, this is, this is really not so good. And I think, right, it just, you don't get the flexibility and whatever. And yet, you know, you don't have parentheses on say your if statements or while statements, right? But then I went back to something like C sharp and I thought, wait a minute, why am I typing all these funky symbols? They're actually unnecessary, right? I thought they were necessary and my mind thought that's what programming was, but then it wasn't. And so there's just a lot of experiences like that coming to Python where it's like, even if it was new and it took some getting used to, after I got used to it, trying to go back was just like, wait a minute. Nah, now that doesn't feel so good as I thought it would. I'm just going to stay here. And I just dove into the Python space, really started learning it, studying it, and eventually started a podcast and a company around it. So yeah, I- I remember, you know, when I was first introduced to Python like 10 years ago, at first I thought, you know, well, what's the point? This is just another programming language. I already know like five of them. Um, Exactly, yeah. And it took me, you know, well, I wasn't programming in it full time. So it actually took me like a couple years to realize like, oh, wow, I can get a script done really fast. And when I need that library, um, I think, you know, the first time I was using it, I was using it to... um, transform a, a a tab separated uh file into something else mm-hmm. i saw somebody in my internship they were doing it um you know they were doing it manually and i'm like no 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 wait a minute let's just let's let me write a script for this let me see if i can write a code instead of you doing this for a week you know and then i was just like oh this library i could just paste it in right away it was pretty awesome um <laughs> so uh, anyway, that was a little bit of a tangent, but uh, people often ask me uh, this question, but I think I have a better insight here. Why do you think that Python has become so popular for data science and machine learning in particular? Well, I, I think there's a little, like I said, when I got to Python, I felt like there was some magic there. And I got to Python as a already have done professional software development for over 10 years, right? Like I wasn't walking into this as maybe a biologist who has to do a little computing and has never thought of herself as a programmer, but here we go because I got to do it, right? You know, that kind of, I think that's more the data science approach a lot of times is folks come through it uh, out of necessity, not out of trying to just learn another language or whatever. But what I think is special about Python and... I honestly don't know very many languages that are like this. Uh, if you want to put a tag on it, I guess I would say that Python is a full-spectrum language. And what I mean by that is there are many programming languages that are good to get you started to solve some programming problem. You can look at super, super simple stuff at like Scratch and the block programming type of things, but also you know Visual Basic, right? Like Visual Basic is not so uh, cool these days, but it was incredible when it was new, right? You could build right business applications doing draggy droppy, double clicky magic and writing just a little yeah, bit yeah. of code, right? I, we have, uh, uh, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. I re- remember like when I was, uh, 
when I was young and I was just playing around on my parents' computer, which is, essentially was my computer because I was the only one who used it in the house. But you <laughs> know, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, like I was first using uh, what QBasic, and then the next one I was like, well, I want Visual Basic. I want to make these little, uh, you know. I, I want to make these Windows applications. Of course, I think I started it because it sounded cool. I don't think I made anything that awesome with it, but I was. But the, the idea was like blew me away. Yeah, for sure. And so there's these these simpler languages, or even the more specialized ones like R. Uh, I know yeah. you've talked about R some, and yeah. it's you know very powerful, but it's also very focused, right? Like, could I build right. a desktop application easily in R? Probably not. Web app. I know there's some progress there, but a general purpose, say. Uh, microservice-backed, <laughs> data-driven thing. Like, could I build that in R? I'm guessing not so, not as easily, right? And so there's a lot of these languages that are either really good at beginning or they're just very focused, like MATLAB or R or something, where you right. can do your thing, but you you outgrow it, right? So eventually someone comes along and you say, hey, I'm trying to build this thing. They're like, they kind of put their arm around your shoulder and say, I'm sorry, but you have to use a real programming language to do this, right? right. You've got to go learn C or C++ or Java or whatever, C-sharp, one of these sort of compiled header linker libraries, sort of like all of a sudden, you know, all this stuff, right? So yeah. on the other hand, on the other end of the spectrum, I put C++, C-sharp, Java, these languages that are super powerful, but the very first step into them is you get the full, <laughs> you get all the complexity required to build those rich, huge applications from the start, even if you want to do something simple. And Python is special. And then I think Python is about as simple as it can be. I create a file, I type print, quote, hello world, parenthesis, right on there. And I have a fully functioning working program. I can then say, okay, well, I see that there's that's, this library I could use. Yeah, that, that's and I could one like, of the things that was frustrating, like starting out, like learning Java and C, and you're like, why is there all this stuff in here? As a, as a newbie, and... You know, it, it's hard to it's hard to get why there's all the why why what's a class? Why am I building a class? All that you know, sure, Python sure. Is, is clean, yeah, yeah. And there, I think there's this there's this kind of fundamentally broken way in which programming is taught most of the time. And in my courses and stuff, I've tried to like think about how I can avoid this or solve this or whatever, address it. But the fundamental problem I see is that the the curriculum assumes like a ridiculous amount of delayed gratification. So let me give you an example, right? Like I want to build a game in C++. I don't know C++ yet. So I'm going to go learn about types. I'm going to learn about pointers. I'm going to learn about functions. I'm going to learn about classes. I'm going to learn about templates. I'm going to learn like, a t I'm a you know, new, uh, delete all the memory management. I'm going to learn all that stuff before I can even get a window on the screen with a dot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I'm going to take like a year or no, maybe not a year, like a half year of going through these really tricky technical bits before I can do anything. Once you get there, you have this great power and it's amazing, but there's always like this huge long delay before you can be productive with a language that's at the far end of the spectrum, right? That's not the case yeah. with, say, Visual Basic, but you can't go all the way, right? You, like, run out of runway or something like this. And so I think the special thing about Python is it has this super simplicity that as, say, let's just, I'm going to pick on biology, right? Let's just say I'm a biologist. I want to do some computation. Uh, MATLAB's not quite doing it for me. I've heard Python is this thing I could check out. It has a great bunch of libraries. It has, you know, like, bio... PyBio, I don't know, I'm just making that up, that probably exists, right? But there's probably a bunch probably. of great libraries to do with biology, and I want to use that. 
you can come in. You don't have to know what a function is, what a class is, what generators are, what threading. Like none of that stuff. Do you compilers, linking header? None of that. I need to know how to write the seven lines of code in the example and tweak it a little bit. It doesn't even have to be in a function, right? You just run it straight down, like kind of like as if it were MATLAB or Jupyter or something like that. And then, as you grow, as as you sort of become more capable in the language, you can pull in these rich computer science ideas. You can pull in classes. You can pull in generators and asynchronous programming and all this stuff. But you only do that as you want it. I guess you know you you can have a really you can be very effective with a partial understanding of Python. Not so much with the other languages. I think that's actually a good lesson if we can distill this down for anyone who's not only designing a language but like a piece of technology or software, just a product that someone's willing to use, is that, um, you know, think about the the use case when you're just starting. Like, is there a way to get lots of value out of this product up front, you know, without having to understand all of the pieces of it? Um, I think that's that could be a lesson from Python to take away from this. I definitely think it's a lesson to take away, like this ability to be really productive with a partial understanding and probably not shoot yourself in the foot. You know, yeah. there's a phrase that I really like of falling into the pit of success. You want to you wanna set up the way that you interact with your technology, programming, library, language, whatever, so that the thing people are most likely to do is what you want them to do, <laughs> All right? As opposed to, oh, you should know, didn't you know you can't do it that way? That was a big problem, right? You leaked memory, and now, like, when you load too much data, you can't run it anymore, or something weird like that. Right, right. Make it difficult to, or make it easy to do the right thing. Uh, right. Make make it a conscious effort to not do the right thing. Let's say that. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right. Do you still see Python applications or libraries that just blow you away? I mean, you must get a lot of submissions or something with this podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely see a bunch of Python libraries and apps that blow me away. But what's interesting is I see so many that it's kind of like, it's a blur, you know? It's like you yeah. go to the museum and you look at 100 pictures and you're like, well, which one's your favorite? Like, well, which ones did you see? It's like, well, I don't know. I saw a lot. And, you know, it's just kind of just blurs together. But, yeah, there's definitely some that stand out for me. I mean, with the Python Bytes podcast, like, that's all we do every week is just take in new libraries and stuff like that. And it's it's quite a bit... So I don't know, I guess I'll throw some out there that that I can think of but like I said this is really just absolutely the tip of the, the iceberg. Yeah. So there's I'll just be I'll, I'll be quick. Uh, I won't go into too we, much detail. We know detail. you've done what uh you've done 170 shows in each one I don't know how many shows you've done but uh Yeah, like 135 <laughs> can, in Python just give bytes us a, and so yeah, just just give us a little <laughs> taste. I don't expect the Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> I don't expect all those. Well, my retina retina is uh that like I know there's such good stuff. I'm I just can't remember. You know what I mean? But yeah. so, uh, so some that really blow me away are are not necessarily like great giant huge things. They're more things yeah. that go that just make you go, oh, that really is the way it should be. So for example, if anybody's trying to do asynchronous programming in Python, like yeah. if you well, lay out the, the, I, I, for, for the, the audience first, let's define asynchronous programming because sure. this is a more general audience. So. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. So if if you're doing some kind of programming where you try to do more than one thing at a time. And okay. I'm being vague here because 
there's different ways in which you can do that. So, you know, probably the most common thought is you create what are called multiple threads. These leverage the separate cores on your CPU separately, or maybe even on a GPU or something like that, right? But you could yeah. also create multiple processes and let the operating system do that. There's, there's ways in, in the operating system to like wait on things like network responses and uh, the disk to respond to you when you ask for a file and stuff like that. And that's called IO-driven asynchrony. So there's all these different ways. And Python is a little weird in that it's kind of not very good at, at mixing that stuff or being super flexible. I mean, you can achieve it and it's, it's all great, but there's all these hoops you got to jump through depending on the type of problem you're trying to solve. So there's this really cool library called Unsync, like asynchronous, but undoing the complexity or something like that. And the entire library is 120 lines, 126 lines of Python. That's a whole library, one file. And what it does is it unifies all those programming models in the most clean and beautiful way. It just brings it all together. Like all this complexity and the horror stories around Python and asynchronous programming is just like, well, you just put this on here and now it's easy. It's ridiculous. That's beautiful. 126 lines. I, yeah. <laughs> that, that reminds me of, I mean, a few episodes ago, in episode 68, I was talking about like classes that blew me away. And that's like um, my professor in, in Haskell and undergrad wrote in front of us a, a game of Pong in 17 lines. And, like <laughs> That blew me <laughs> wow. away. And I was like, yeah, yeah. That, that's crazy. Well, I remember some yeah. experiences like that from uh, Lisp and Scheme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a couple uh, of other uh, this there's one called passlib, and yeah. it has basically two meaningful functions: one to hash a password and one to determine if it's correct. But it mm. automatically does all the really tricky stuff that you need to do to handle passwords correctly. So if you're doing any user management, passlib like makes you know kind of the the pit of success is exactly what you need to do. Like, for example, if I want to take a password and put it in my database, you definitely don't put it in by itself. Like, that's the first super big no-no. Yeah, but the second one can is... hack the database, now all of a sudden they have everyone's password. And then exactly. You, many people reuse passwords, all of a sudden they got your Gmail, they get into your credit card, who knows what and, could happen. And if you're in your email, I've learned if somebody is in an email they have every other password, right? They can see yeah. all the places you subscribe and they can just reset yeah. it and it comes right back to that account. So yeah, that's it's super a, bad. Uh, people should be scared. I, that's all I could say. Like set up two-factor uh, authentication. <laughs> yeah, I definitely use two-factor authentication and I use one password. I mean, any password manager will do. I use one password. I, I do as well. And, it's, I recommend it, it. It's ridiculously nice. And all my passwords are like 30 characters randomized, right? Unique. Yeah. 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 So this library, anything that makes it easier for developers to not, you know, I, I, it takes a conscious effort to make your application security friendly. And people are yes. very, it affects people a lot. And anything that makes that easier is, uh, is a very good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another one I think is really cool is, are you familiar with Homebrew? Uh, yes, but only when... Only to the point where I'm like, I need a... Uh, you <laughs> Somebody know, said I, type brew, install this. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Someone <laughs> said type brew, install this. So I do it and uh, magically I get what I want. And then I'm like, oh, maybe I should learn a little bit more about how this works later. But nope, get to work, yeah. Max. That's <laughs> Exactly. So I use Homebrew to like install and keep up to date. Python, Node.js, a uh, bunch of utilities, things like that, right? They're all, they're all really yeah. nice. So there's a... There's a as you know hundred and I don't know how many thousand 
160, 170,000 separate libraries in Python. And many of these are little utilities you can use. And it would be cool if you could install them into your system as part of your OS and then keep them up to date. So there's a package called pipx, which lets you pipx install a thing. And then you have that as a command in your in your whole computer. And it keeps it up to date and isolated and in your user profile. You don't have to be uh, like admin or anything. Yeah. That was very nice. Very nice. Yeah. All right. Yeah, and I so I guess to wrap, wrap it up, I would say people should check out awesome-python.com. There's like okay. a, a place that aggregates this by category. So definitely check that okay. out. Okay. Cool. I, I'll also put all the links today on localmaxradio.com slash 73. And um, I'll link to those three libraries as well. Um, cool. And to all your sites. Um, all right. So... Why do you think Python has lasted so long as a language? I think we, we've kind of tapped into that answer already a little bit. but uh, I think we have a little bit. I think that the longevity of a language I mean, doesn't some have... other languages, like JavaScript, also has amazing longevity, and for probably different reasons. Right. So let's take those as a compare and contrast, right? Yeah. So I feel like I... I like JavaScript for limited purposes, right? Like a little Vue.js or, you know, something like that. It's kind of a cool language and it has its own special uniqueness. But as a language, just evaluated as itself, like I think Python is a much nicer and more thought out language than JavaScript. So is, so is Java. So is C Sharp. So, we're a, you know, so is yeah. Swift. A bunch of languages have been way more thought out than JavaScript. Like JavaScript was designed in 10 days and launched like two months later, right? Like <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's just not a lot of thinking about it. It's like, well, we need something quick and short. And I feel like JavaScript absolutely outgrew the expectations of when it was created, right? It just, yeah. it just has like all the stuff that people are doing with Node.js and these types of things. And Electron is just, you know, the UI framework for like, like Visual Studio Code and whatnot. They're all written in this, right? Slack, the Slack app, for example. Right. So here's two examples, right? Both of them very popular. They're definitely neck and neck for some of the most popular languages. One is kind of a crappy language. And one is... I think better, right? At least in my opinion, I think it's a lot better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> However, they're both really popular. And so why is that? Like there's a, there's a lot of people already using it and there's a ton of incredible libraries that you can plug into it, right? So yeah, they're both um, very they're, extensible. Like they're both very yes. extendable and fixable and um, yeah, even right. If so if, like I can go to JavaScript and I can NPM install, you know, almost anything I want in Python, even more so you can pip install a whatever, like in a couple, you know, run that in, in like eight lines, you probably have a machine learning algorithm model yeah. up and running, right? Like just it, and that has nothing to do with Python, the language, right? So I feel like the language needs a reason to draw people into it to build its community, but then the community sustains itself on the standard libraries and these external libraries. And it gets this sort of almost outside external momentum rolling and it just drags the language along with it regardless. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it takes on a life of its own, uh, bigger than the people who designed it. Although the people who designed it probably have the foresight enough to be like, okay, how can we make it easy for someone to extend this language and build libraries for it, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, sure. But I mean like JavaScript, 
I think the reason it drew people in is like the web is important. I need interactivity. Like it's not just documents. We're trying to build apps. This right. is the only way, right? Regardless of the quality of, Python, of, of JavaScript, it's going to drag people in. And once they're there, they're like, let's build some great libraries to make this better. And then it really, that's like the nitrous oxide boost for the language. You know what I mean? That really kicks it off because all of a sudden, regardless of how you work with Python in like a eight lines, you have a machine learning model, like that is going to draw in machine learning folks, regardless of whether the language is nice anymore. Yeah. I mean, yeah, come to think of it, if you could just put Python directly into your HTML document, I bet a lot of people would do that. But Yes, exactly. Uh, I mean, so. and there's work with that around WebAssembly. Yeah. Right. Oh. Mozilla just released this thing called Pyodide, which brings the entire scientific stack for Python, you know, NumPy and all that stuff into the client side. Okay. So, so it that's can pretty be interesting. Done. Yes. It can be done. Uh, it's not super practical in that form. Uh, maybe it is, but like the download is quite large, right? It's like 20 megs instead of 100K for JavaScript. Like, so there's, yeah. there's a lot of t- to think about uh, whether or not that works. But yeah, I mean, there's, there's some possibilities of that in the future as it gets refined. All right. So um, I want to shift gears a little bit now and just talk about, um, you know, talk about podcasting and some of the software stuff, your business. Um, one, one thing I'm always fascinated by is computer scientists and mathematicians that are able to go into media like, like podcasting and public speaking. And maybe because, you know, I'm working on it and I oftentimes have trouble with like context switching. So I just wanted to ask, like, how did you get into podcasting and, um, and speaking? Sure. And it's, it's on first impression it's like a contradiction right it it doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense aren't computer programmers and mathematicians people who are avoiding the social (laughs) careers like business and marketing and sales and psychology and they're just trying to like work with their chalk or their programs and and not deal with that stuff so why would they possibly come out in such a public way right but i also i think that's I mean, on one hand, I do think there is some truth to that, but I also feel like, especially in, in the computer science side of things, it's much more social than, than a lot of po- folks think. And also, I think one of the yeah, essences is maybe uh, both computer programmers and mathematicians really like what they do most of the time, right? It's yeah. it's almost like their hobby became their job. And right, so right. I think this this like passion for the subject exceeds any reticence to not not put yourself out there or you know you don't have much training for it or things like that yeah yeah no i found that um you know whenever i start thinking about you know uh, uh, marketing and promoting and um and and teaching for this podcast all of a sudden i get really excited about you know programming again. Uh, whereas if I'm just um, sitting at home programming all day, it could be exciting or <laughs> some projects, not so much. <laughs> but you know, it's, uh, yeah. uh, it, 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 I mean, I got into computer science initially, I fell into it initially in, in as an undergrad, because it was way more like interdisciplinary. And, um, and yeah, uh, so but um, yeah, I, I agree with what you said. Um, so I, I want to ask, there's been various pushes to make 
uh, like coding skills central for uh, kids in education. Um, how do you think about that? Uh, you know, who should become a programmer? Do do we need more coders? I, sometimes people talk about, oh, you know, the automation and, you know, everyone should be a coder and it gets to be too much. And it's usually said by people who are not programmers or software engineers. Uh, <laughs> right, <laughs> right. That? Yeah, that's usually how it goes, right? Yeah. Well, I think we get uh, conflicting messages here. Uh, we hear that automation is taking everyone's job. We hear that outsourcing is killing off all the first, you know, the high-end programming jobs and things like that, right? So on one hand, it's like, well, that's kind of a dying thing. Who wants to go into programming? On the other, we hear, you know, I think rightly so to some degree, we hear educators and policymakers saying we need more computer science skills. And when it comes out of their mouth, I think it's a little bit distorted because they don't fully see the picture, I, I believe. Um, I think it comes out as saying we need more programmers or it feels like they're saying we need more coders because we have because you often hear them say, well, we have a, a million programming jobs that are going to go unfilled or have to be outsourced or whatever. Yeah. And I, I don't think that's quite what we need. I, I think actually it's not terrible because if they went through that process, I think the result would be we would get what we need, but I don't think it's, you know, it'd be, it's best to push directly in the direction you should go and not like 75 degrees towards where you should go and like, you know, right, adjust. Right. And so what I think that we need, is, you know, like let's, let's make it personal. Let's suppose my biologist person uh, is not a programmer she loved genetics and she loved being out in the field studying right. evolution. It makes you want to spend a year in Galapagos Island studying like, like nothing to do with technology per se. Right. Okay. Well, so that person does, she need to be a programmer. Like maybe she should learn programming and just drop out. Cause how much do we really need to study about Galapagos these days? And I think that's the, not really the right answer. I think what the right answer is, is if, she had a little bit of coding skills, like a little bit of Python, understanding these libraries, you know, enough to write, let's say, a, a solid 100-line script to solve a problem in her field. Yeah. I think that that becomes a superpower for her. So she can say, well, I used to be able to collect this data, but then I had to analyze it and put it into Excel and do these things. And it just, I can only study like a hundred creature observations, a different hundred creatures, right? But if all of a right. sudden you could automate that, you could study, you know, 50,000. If somehow you could create a little IoT thing, stick it out there, get a bunch of measurements, right? Like the programming just unlocks what you're already good at to like another degree, yeah, if you're in I psychology, so. you could do this either for your patients or for your clinic. If you're in finance, you could, I mean, like name almost anything that works with information, which is right. most good careers. Like they can be super powered with a little bit of programming skill, not full CS degrees. That's an interesting way to put it. And, and if you have that kind of core, uh, not core competency, but like, what was I saying? Like the the core knowledge to be able to do little things, then um, it helps you, uh, you know, both get little things done that you need in your, like, let's say you're a marketer and you want to like analyze some data. But also, if you're working in an organization and, you know, you have some developers, you can hire a developer, you have someone's time for a few days, you maybe understand a little bit about what they're going to be writing up. And you could maybe have a better conversation with them to make that process yeah. go more smoothly. 
Um, yeah, I mean, so you can work with programmers just better. like, yeah, yeah, just like if if I learn a little bit about marketing and sales, then I could talk to them a little or business. I could have a better you know interactions with with them. Yeah, that's right. And you know, let's think about it from this outsourcing perspective, which to me doesn't feel like a real danger these days anymore. You know, maybe that's like passed along. But if your job, if your main skill is I know how to create websites that talk to databases, you are now competing with millions of people. If you say I have a master's degree in genetics, I understand biochemistry and I can do, you know, Jupiter and Python and a little bit of data science. All of a sudden you're competing with like 20 people. (laughs) I don't know, maybe, maybe 50 people, right? Like it's, it's just so super focused. There could be a lot in the world, but in terms of the (laughs) people, a specific employer who needs that can, or a specific project, like, there's going to be very few people who can be like, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I, I'm just thinking like, you know, it's probably a hundred to one more focused, right? So there's, yeah. there's just, if somebody needs that skill, you have a really good chance of having that opportunity to work with them if you want, or to just further your career. So, so I think it's, we don't need more programmers. We need a bunch of people who are passionate and expert in a thing and they can, they can 10 X that thing with programming. That's what I think we need. Awesome. Yeah, it's a pretty good way to think about. Um, and and I, have, I have a concrete suggestion as well. It might be okay. controversial. Go for it. I, I, think, I, I think that we should re- – so when we, go to co- when we go to school, at least in the United States, in middle school, right, I don't know, how old are you then? You're like 9, 10, 11. One uh, of the things that you – no, you're probably a little – you know, you're older than that. You're 12, 13, 14, right? Yeah. So maybe you're, maybe you're 13, 14 years old. You're taking something like geometry, Euclidean right. geometry with the, the real purpose of that course, I believe the way it's taught, is to help you understand how to logically think through something and prove it. So right. a problem might be prove that if this is an isosceles triangle and these things are similar and this line is like this, that the angle of this part here matches the angle of that part there, right? And the whole yeah. thing is to think through the reasoning, applying the algorithm, the, the axiom, sorry, applying them yeah. to get to 10 steps. Yeah, I like You know what that classes. feels <laughs> yeah, I like it. Yeah, I, f- I think they're good. But I think that same thought process is exactly what you do in programming. You have the rules right. of the program, you have the API, and you think through the steps and the way to combine them to get to the end. And, you know, how often have you applied geometry? <laughs> like the proof stuff, that you, surely the thinking process, but not, yeah. I mean, there's very few people who apply geometry these days. Yeah. But well, if you could, if you could replace I, that with, with a programming course, that would be killer. Yeah, that, interesting. Or maybe combine it with a programming course because I, I don't know. It would be hard to – yeah. It's, but I, I think it's impossible, but this is my, this is yeah. my pipe dream. I, it's impossible yeah, no, because I, I think I a lot of people want – like there's just a whole uh, flow of courses you take and people who are expert in that, in that and they, like, they surely wouldn't want to give up their geometry if that's their favorite thing, why they became a teacher, you know, things like this, right? It's, there's yeah. a lot of human – complexity right. in it. But right, right, but right. I think there's places in the curriculum to make it pretty easy for people to get these superpowers. And uh, yeah, I think we I should feel like make that happen. That would be possible if you sat down with the mathematics curriculum and you tried to figure out where we can cut certain things out and include kind of um, uh, programming or computer science uh, applications into it. But it almost have to be like on a case-by-case basis. Um, yeah. And, well, imagine you had this one course, right? And then your yeah. biology course could assume that you have a little bit of programming skill. 
right. your chemistry course could assume you have a little bit of programming. And like it, it could then be taught in context, little tiny bits without getting in the way the rest of the stuff. But you need this Those one like, little foundation. Those classes would be so much more fun. It wouldn't be, can about, totally like, be more memorizing fun. all these formulas and stuff. It would be about like yeah. applying them and calculating and, fi- and having a better understanding of how it worked. So yeah, the more yep. I think about it, it could work. Um, <laughs> it's an alternate reality, so. but yeah, it would be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I took, well, let me see. Like my high school had elective computer science classes. Um, so that's sort of about as far as it went. I don't know now. I mean, it's, it's been a while. It's almost 20 years. <laughs> not quite, but yeah. almost. And so um, I wonder what they do now. I'm not even sure. Yeah. I know. It's, it's interesting. I, you know, if people want to like, think about the effects of this, like, a really interesting thing that was done recently was the um, micro bits and the, the BBC micro bit and this whole project in the UK. Like every... I don't remember what grade it was, like some middle school grade or something. Every kid in the UK was giving a little IoT device and taught to program it with with MicroPython. Hmm. And it, it, it did something ridiculous, like changed the number of women who said they would consider programming in computer science as a career they might be interested in or a focus for them, like went tremendously up through that exposure sure. and stuff. Yeah. And it's, I, I feel like all these- People um, realize it's not, it's not that hard. Yes, exactly. Right. Like society tells you you can't do it. Then you're like, wait, but I just did it. So I, I don't know why they're yeah. telling me I can't, you know? Right. And I think it's one of these things where these electives and these after school, like computer clubs are all great. But I think if we want to make it a general thing, kind of like a lot of these initiatives are pushing on, we need to give everyone a legitimate, decent taste of it. And then they can choose where they go. But I think, you know, the BBC micro bit study actually was really interesting there. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, um, uh, about a few weeks ago, or by the time this comes out, it'll be about a month ago, uh, on episode 69 of Local Maximum, I was talking to my co-host. We were discussing the um, different business models for content like podcasts and kind of the plus and pluses and minuses of free versus paid content um, and the way you know, you know, we kind of looked at the, the upsides, the downsides. And one of the downsides of free content is there's like this dependent on, dependency on ads, which it's not bad. I like ads, but it could create a lot of consolidation in the space where there are a few huge players. And I kind of said off the cuff, hey, uh, maybe free podcasts need to be combined with a business. And then Aaron asked me, well, how would that work? And I was like, uh, I don't know. I, I maybe <laughs> someone could do something. Uh, I, you know, I certainly don't want to listen to a one-hour ad of someone's business. But, but uh, I, I don't know. And 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 then I look at what you're doing with Talk Python to me and Python Bytes, and I see that you're doing pretty much exactly that. So, <laughs> am I am I right, or how did you build a software business from a podcast? Yeah, you're pretty much exactly right. Uh, it's. I got to say, it's kind of wild. It's amazing, and I love it, but it's it's also wild. Like, uh, I started the first podcast in April 2015. The yeah. next year, a little bit less than a year, I had gotten it to the point where I quit my software development job and focused full-time on just the podcast and stuff around that. So yeah. for the last three years, three and a half years or whatever the math works out to be, it's, you know, running the podcast and stuff around it has been my full-time job. Yeah, so your, your podcast must have grown pretty fast because this show is growing, but, you know, slow. <laughs> but yours had a very specific uh, area that, like a community that a lot of people were interested in, sort of an unmet need. 
Yeah, it definitely was unmet. For some reason, you know, as people probably know at this point, like Python is one of the most popular programming languages out there. I already said how programmers are super passionate and they have part of their identity tied up in the programming space that they work in, but also their careers. But there was, so, so podcasts are very natural for those kinds of audiences. And yet there was zero, not one or two, not super good podcasts. There were zero podcasts in the Python space when I started mine. And so I thought, well, I honestly didn't think I would do a great job. I thought I would do okay. I don't know. I thought maybe I would. Did you have any backgrounds in in podcasting or radio or anything like that? I had only, no, I had only experience in like public speaking. I had done software uh, professional training, right? So you want to get a team up to speed on something, I'd come and do a course for it. And I taught actually like calculus and learning algebra and stuff at university for a couple of years. So. I had I would say public speaking, speaking to small groups, that type of thing was kind of my expertise that I brought. Yeah. And so that's not so much the public speaking part. I, I don't think that that's as important. What I think is really important for this kind of stuff is being able to, one, learn stuff really quickly so you have enough context to be an interesting host. And you have to be able yeah. to ask good questions and, and just listen and be like super curious. So I just kind of threw myself into that and said, all right, I'm going to. I'm going to learn how to do interviews and I'm going to figure out how to ask good questions and I'm going to learn enough to, to know what those questions would be. So when you started the podcast, did you know how big it was going to be or did you just say, let's just try this oh, project? No, it's, it's definitely bigger than I thought it would be. And I never expected even to have advertisements or have the podcast be directly my my goal. Yeah. I always thought like at some point I would want to do something like create some online courses like I have um, and things like that. And I had gone through enough failed startups, both in the online education space and not quite failed, but not quite successful in the online yeah. education space, but <laughs> also full, yeah, but full on failed ones in others. And what I had decided after going through them, it wasn't technical. It wasn't, you know, like technically this, those, all those projects were cool. Maybe they were good ideas. Maybe they weren't. But the the common theme that went through all of them was getting the word out, having people trust you or your product or your business, having people interested in you, having goodwill towards you. All of those things were absent, right? Because it was just like, well, I created right. a website. I hope people come and like it. How do I tell them about it, right? right. But I had seen examples of other folks where there was an audience or there was a group of a community they are already working with who was, you know, wanted to support them. They thought they were doing good work. And if they continue to do good work and other things like that, then they would continue to support them. So my original goal was to just kind of build up a community and then like see what would come after that, right? Yeah. Whatever that happened to be. Where um, And I just I was just curious to do it. I always wanted to run a podcast and the opportunity was there. So yeah, well, I, I'm sure I, I never expected to be a job. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm sure, and just from my experience here, I'm sure you became very quickly um, in, in, like an expert in Python or someone that people look to, like that probably happened way more quickly than you expected. Because when you're doing the podcast, you have to learn, you have to learn stuff so fast. And it's, it's just a better way to learn. I feel it's, like when you're trying yeah, to ask it's questions. so interesting. It's, it, yeah, yeah, it, it's better way to learn than you know, even if you're programming in Python all day, you, you kind of get stuck in the bubble of whatever your specific project right. is, right? You know, exactly. Without actually going back and seeing what the broader community is doing. So um, yeah, certainly people put me in the expert spokesman 
position sooner than I felt like I deserved to be in that position. But here's the thing, like, as you know, I'm sure as a podcast host, you, you get a lot of credibility, uh, as long as you do a good job, I guess, put on you or attributed to you through um, just sort of association, right? Like, you've got some famous person who's done some incredible thing on your show. You had yeah. a great, fun conversation with them. All of a sudden, people are like, well, these these are kind of similar people, right? You know, yeah. like... I, I didn't, uh, you didn't transfer all your information to me, but now all of a sudden uh, <laughs> I have some, people will know I have some knowledge of Python. People actually, actually, I have, I've been programming in Python for a while and this is probably the first show I've even mentioned, uh, mentioned it. So there you yeah, go. <laughs> interesting. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, there's just these, there's inner, and you do it week after week with different people and it just becomes yeah. really interesting, right? Like, uh, I know folks in the, as you know, doing high-end astronomy, right? Not mm. super well, but I, I know them and they they know me because of the podcast. So there's just a lot of these really interesting connections and opportunities that open up from public speaking, from podcasting, uh, stuff like this, right? Like uh, all of a yeah. sudden you you have, you're in a much different place than just somebody who goes and builds cool code or models or whatever in like a cubicle for some cool project, but you, you don't really get any personal visibility, right? It's, it's, it's pretty uh, stressful and scary, but it's also really rewarding. Yeah. Very cool. All right. I can't, I know you've done some work with MongoDB and I don't want this to be too long, but I can't uh, end this interview without mentioning it um, because, you know, we worked at Mon- with MongoDB at Foursquare. They were one of, I think we were one of their first clients Um and we were in their same office building for a while. So where was database tech at when you first got into Mongo and where is it today? Yeah, well, I'm a huge fan of MongoDB, as, as you point out, and I definitely think that they're doing real cool stuff. I've on and off worked with them for various, worked with the software, the, pro, the database server MongoDB for a couple of these projects. Currently, my websites all run on it. They didn't actually start out on MongoDB, but they are are now. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of what they're doing. Actually, I think they're they're great. But I th- I feel like they've they've definitely had to grow up in, in some sort of technical sense, right? Not necessarily as a business, but you know, the, for example, like in the early days, there uh, you know probably when you got started, there were all sorts of caveats around how you use the MongoDB, right? Like, hey, yeah, make sure that you don't let it crash because then it might lose your data. Unless you're running I was in a, a position, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all sorts I, I of just say I was like in that. a position where I didn't deal with this stuff directly, but I saw other people in the office pulling their hair out, dealing with it. Exactly, and so slowly, slowly over the years, they're like, "All right, we're finally going to add this feature as the default." And yeah, it might make things a little bit slower, but it's going to yeah. make it safer. And I just feel like MongoDB would have been in a lot better place today if they had just bitten the bullet and just taken a lot of those those changes right away. For example, like mm. still the default is to run MongoDB without a username and password. And still okay. we hear right. of places getting hacked. Um, just because they for, have no password. Uh, right. There's a, there's a <laughs> development version out on some cloud server that people forgot about and it happened to have no password at all. Like all you yeah. have to do is just aye, connect aye. to it and aye, like aye, you've aye. read all that. Right. All right. So like the, there's changes like that that are coming along. It's getting better. Now you get warnings. But I, I feel like uh, if you ask how it's evolved, that's how it's evolved. It's kind of gotten these more uh, – the, the stuff that maybe is not as cool or as fun or 
is not as easy to work with, but it's like slowly making it right like a true first class database server that it should be. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. I yeah. think it does great stuff. Run all my things. Well, they are they are a staple of like the New York uh, tech community here. Um, and, uh, yeah, New York tech community is pretty small. It's everybody kind of cycles through everybody. Like a lot of people's heard of different companies. You start yeah. meeting the same people at your meetups. So maybe it's the same thing in, um, in Portland, but, uh, uh, I, I kind of find that kind of, that find, I find that kind of nice. Um, yeah, that's very all nice. Right. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, we're about to wrap up. Uh, any last thoughts and where should people go if they want to find out more? Sure. I guess some, some last thoughts is, you know, given you have a technical show, like we talked about how you, you know, had the question about why would mathematicians or computer scientists start things like, I don't know, like a podcast, not necessarily just podcasts, but things like this. Right. So I, I guess I'd like to say kind of two little things, just encourage people to, you know, do some small thing, each week that pushes you out of your comfort zone. And that could be in like lots of different directions, right? It could be my analogy of the biologist. She learns a little bit of programming each week and like in a year, all of a sudden, like her, her lab is running like 50% automation or something crazy like this. Right. Or, you know, propose like a lightning talk at a conference or a talk at a local meetup or something. Just these things make huge differences in their careers. Like this kind of stuff is what actually got me into training, which got me into the podcast, which like the projection out, it's kind of like compound interest. It doesn't seem like much, but you know, far out it it actually is. Yeah. That's good advice. And I think um, it, it, it'll keep people happier. It'll keep their life and work life career uh, interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess that's my sort of final thought is like, you know, looking back on on some of the stuff like that's, that's probably the most generally applicable advice I can give. And then people want to learn about the podcast, they can just go to their podcast player and type in Python. Uh, You'll find uh, talk Python to me. You'll come up first on Python. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, it's it'll come up first at, in there. So talk Python to me, and then also Python Bytes. One is long form interviews, a little bit like what we're doing here. That's talk Python. The other one is like uh, audio newsletter, right? Quick couple items each week, not super long. And then if you want to check out the courses, I have a ton of courses around all sorts of things, including MongoDB over at training.talkpython.fm, and follow me on Twitter at at mkennedy. All right, Michael Kennedy, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Max. All right, next week, another news update with my co-host Aaron. There's a lot more news that has come out about Google's manipulation of their search engine. Is there any doubt that they do this now? I don't see how there can be. And also, the Supreme Court ruled on gerrymandering recently, which is a good segue to do some election analysis, which is... No, not the election, just kind of elections in general, social choice. But, uh, you know, we'll probably talk about the election, too. Some guests right here. I, uh, I don't want to jinx it until I have the recordings in the bag. But over the next few weeks, we're going to get really deep into the future, hopefully talking about AI, artificial intelligence, blockchain, and how everything you think is permanent is now just a blip on the radar. So keep listening to The Local Maximum. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. 
The show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account, at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.